The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. All right, I'm curious, by show of hands, how many of, of us in the room are students of some kind? St- middle, middle school, elementary, high school, college, postgraduate, PhD, some of you guys. Not like lifelong learner, student, dorky, like actual students. We've got a handful. Okay, that's great. Now, tell me if I'm wrong, but at some point, Every semester, no matter how excited you are about that semester beginning, no matter how eager you are to learn, there comes a point when you hit a wall and you are just over the assignments and you are over having to show up to class at 8 a.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays and you are ready for the sweet, unutterable relief of summer break, right? Maybe some of you are saying, yes, that's me. And, and maybe the 15 degree, maybe you're not a student, but the 15 degree weather makes you say, I'm ready for summer on days like this. Amen. Uh, by the way, if you are a college student, I do want to invite you to something really quick. Uh, next Sunday, college students, we're going to have lunch, just crockpot tacos, chicken tacos in my place. If you're a college student, uh, wherever you're student at, we just want to extend a hand of hospitality, invite you to come eat with us. You can sign up for that online, and you are welcome to bring friends with you. That's just a, oh, by the way, that's next week. Now, speaking of, of college and kind of longing for summers, I read a, a great essay recently by one of my favorite authors, and he talked about his boyhood experience of being in school and experiencing kind of that moment where you hit that wall at the beginning or middle of the semester. Now, he was talking about being in boarding school like a century ago, so it's probably a little bit worse than we have it, not quite our experience. But nonetheless, he said at the beginning of each semester, there was always this kind of it literally incredible reality of summer break that was dangled out in front of them. It's incredible in that it's literally not believable. The, summer, or the, the, the semester begins and you know and you hope for some future point where some future version of you would experience summer, but it feels a million miles away from what is currently happening in the present. He said that you feel sick with desire for summer. It's like, that's so great. I totally get that. You're thrilled and shaken. It's a, he said, it gives you a shiver down your spine at the possibility of such a place. A mythical land where there's no assignments, there's no horrors of geometry. It's things like pools and long mornings where you get to sleep in and bright sunshine and vitamin D. You're excited for the possibility of that end finally arriving. But right now, all you can do is count down the months, the weeks, the days. He says, uh, he remembers the night before his final morning, he said he could hardly go to sleep that night. And then finally, when he woke up the morning where summer break began, he said it was like he swallowed sunshine itself, which I think is just so great. The end finally came. Summer really did arrive. And he said, again, the feeling was like swallowing sunshine, which is just such a great metaphor. Now, what I think this essay is showing us and what the author is doing, I think very cleverly, is showing us something that is deeply true about the reality of what it means to be human. Humans are inescapably so creatures of hope. It's not something that's just limited to childhood or limited to students who are longing for summer break. Our whole lives operate this way at every turn. 
I mean, how is it that we survive those horrible corporate Zoom meetings week after week? It's the hope of the weekend where we're free from things like Zoom. How do we survive boring sermons? The hope of good lunch, Mexican food, held out before us. How do we survive the semester? The hope of the summer, that mythical land where there's no more assignments or alarm clocks. These aren't lies or truisms intended to pacify us or dismiss our hardships. Rather, they are rock-solid certainties that keep us sane in the midst of difficulties. We are sustained by hope. More specifically, we are sustained by the objects of our hope. In the same way we are sustained by food, through even the ugliest of circumstances, the hope of a better tomorrow is medicinal for us. Now, 1 Peter we're on the second Sunday in, in our walk through the letter of First Peter, and last week we laid some groundwork about what it is that Peter's doing in this letter, who it is that Peter's talking to. We said last week that the folks receiving these letters, uh, this letter rather, are exiles, as Peter calls them. They're folks who are strewn ac- across these affluent pagan cities in the Roman world, and they were exiles in the sense that they, well, they weren't home. They were displaced from their home. They were different by virtue of being followers of Jesus, again, in these cities and communities and families that didn't share their values. They were folks who were sort of pushed to the outskirts of society. They were weird on the basis of their commitment to the Lord Jesus. Formerly, many of them would have been in the dead center of these social circles. They would have been wealthy. They would have been well-known. They would have been well-liked. But now, by virtue of their attachment to Jesus, they're weirdos. They're on the outskirts. They're exiles. We know that some of these folks have been targeted by something like soft persecution, we might say, that looks like being excluded from social circles, name-calling, false accusation, loss of jobs, cut off from families, even in certain circumstances, losing their inheritance, losing dowries, all related either directly or indirectly to their faith in the Lord Jesus. And so in our passage today, where Peter really starts to get into the meat of what he has to say to these Christians, right at the outset, what does Peter say to them? What does he offer to these suffering, persecuted exiles to give them strength to sustain them? Last week, we drew a parallel between our situation and theirs. We said, though we're probably not experiencing things to the same degree that these brothers and sisters were, we, in recent years, have been made aware of the fact that we are exiles. We are homeless in a post-Christian world. We're weird. Some of our most basic ethical beliefs are regarded as heresies advocated only by the lunatic fringe. And so what we said is we're like these brothers and sisters. We are exiles. And so like these folks, what can be said to us? What can be said to an exile that could sustain them, that could give them strength to bear up under any and every hardship? And the answer is hope. A word of hope. Let's look again at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What has he done? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't... don't, 
I don't even know where to begin here because there is so much goodness. It is overwhelming to me. This is actually one of my favorite passages. In the fall of 2009, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but a passage just lands on you and it just, it just lands there and you can't quite get out from under it in a good way. That happened to me in like 2009 and ever since then, this has been one of my favorite passages and I just recite it and return to it and it has formed so many of my convictions about what it means to be a Christian that I'm have way more to say than we have time to address, and we're just, we're just going to go for it and, and see how it goes. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go. All right, so born again first. Born again. He says that we have been born again to a living hope. This is language from Jesus in John chapter 3 to describe our conversion. But conversion is just a word that sounds so sanitized or clinical or something like that. It doesn't register the profound reality of what's happened to us. Jesus says that his people have been born again by the Holy Spirit. In other words, our lives have been reset. We, we have a new family, a, a, a new life, new destiny, new loves, new taste buds of the heart, new hopes. We have been born again, not a flesh. How can you, Nicodemus asked Jesus, how can he, how can he go back in and be born again? And, and, and Jesus says, no, this is, this is new birth by the Spirit. God has caused us to be born again. To two things in particular, verse 4, to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead, and verse 4, to an inheritance, to a living hope and to an inheritance. Here, Peter's saying that we've been born again to these two things, and he's essentially saying the same thing. He's just highlighting two different aspects of the same reality of our living hope. Living hope. He says we've been born again to a hope that cannot die, a living hope, because it's a hope that is linked to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, Christian, we too, like the Lord Jesus, will be raised with him. The New Testament tells us that in, in, in our belief on a resurrected Jesus, there's sort of two resurrections we experience, you might say. The first resurrection is this, uh, this kind of interchange that takes place within us. We're given a new life and a new heart and a new spirit, and we learn to, to love the things that Jesus loves, to love the things that God loves. We put to death the old man. We're resurrected to this new kind of interior life. But there's another resurrection that's promised for us. It is a literal raising from the dead. Our corpses will exit the grave, and they will somehow be reanimated and, 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 and refilled with our essence of soul or whatever, and we're, we're going to be like Christ on the other side of death forever. So we have a, a living hope and that we're going to be resurrected just as the Lord Jesus was resurrected. And I realized it just sounded like I was talking about reanimated zombies or something, but I hope you understand what I mean by that. We've been raised to a, born again to a living hope, and then we're born again to an inheritance. Now, what is an inheritance, especially in the ancient world? Now, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you know how important it was to be the firstborn son, Big bummer for all little brothers in the room who have, like me, an older brother. The firstborn son in the ancient world was often promised things like uh, the, the, uh, the money of the father, the estate of the father, the father's wealth. And often a child would have this promised inheritance that would await the child until they came of age. So the child would turn 18, let's say, and that inheritance that was kept or guarded for them would officially become their inheritance. Peter's saying that we have been born again to an inheritance, to some kind of gift that is being kept in heaven for us. Like a child who has not yet come of age, who will eventually receive that inheritance, we are promised such a gift from our Heavenly Father. I remember several years ago, uh, probably 10 or 12 years ago, I got really into vinyl records for like 10 minutes. Anybody, anybody like <laughs> vinyl records? Yeah, some of you, one of you does. Um, 
I decided to go ask my grandmother, Nana. I mentioned Nana last, this is the same Nana from last week. I went to Nana and asked, hey, Nana's one of those grandparents that just has a way of holding on to stuff, you know what I mean? And I went to Nana and said, hey, you got any, you got any vinyl records still around? Do you, have, do you have any records? Now, my family's super blessed, but we're definitely not wealthy, and so this would have been the closest thing to an inheritance for me, right? Maybe grandma's got like a, I don't know, rare... Beatles record or something like that. And she, she assured me, she was like, oh, I got all the Beatles stuff. I got Rolling Stones. I got the Monkees. I got Elvis Presley. I got whatever you want. And so my mind starts churning about the possibilities of selling these things on eBay or taking them to Mr. K's or you know, doing something with these records, right? And so I go up into the attic, Nana's attic, and after I kind of sift through all manner of stuff, I find this gigantic box of records. And let me just ask you, if you're familiar with South Carolina heat, and addicts. What state do you think I found those records in when I finally discovered them? The paper was completely brittle, and it was all, you know, as soon as you touched it, it disintegrated, and the, the, the records themselves were warped to high heaven, just completely warped. And you put it on the record player, and it was like, let it be, let me, let it be. You know what I mean? And that's the thing about inheritance on this side of eternity, Right? I mean, I'm being silly about the record thing, but, but what thing do you possess isn't only, you know, ultimately going to end up with the same fate as those records, right? What on this side of eternity is imperishable, isn't susceptible to, to rust and, and moths and thieves and South Carolina summer heat? What things do you own aren't eventually going to be ground into nothingness eventually? What Peter says is the thing about the inheritance that we're promised in Christ is that it cannot perish, it cannot be defiled, it cannot fade. It is impervious, it is invulnerable, it is untouchable. And that's not all. Look at verse 4 again. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Kept. Not in the sense of being withheld from you, but in the sense of being guarded for you. Watched over for you to be sure that nobody and nothing tampers with it. Remember again these readers. You know, you wonder if some of them converted to Jesus and lost family. You wonder if some of these folks literally lost an inheritance by virtue of their conversion to Christianity. And here, Peter is a brilliant pastor. He says, hey, good, good news, Christian brothers and sisters. Your inheritance is locked away for you, kept in the heart of God for his people. Treasure down here can be taken. Homes can be broken into, but not this These are people whose stuff cannot be plundered. Though their lives may be ruptured by suffering, you have an inheritance that cannot decay, cannot rust, cannot move, cannot fade. And he says, this inheritance is going to be yours one day. Like a child who comes of age, it will be yours when the Lord Jesus returns and makes all things right. Verse 5, this is so good. Not only is the inheritance being kept, verse 5, he says, Peter says, You are being guarded by God's power through faith for the salvation that is to come. Your inheritance is guarded, and guess what else? You are guarded by God's power for the inheritance that awaits you. We're used to talking about salvation in the past tense. We'll talk about when I was saved and back when I was 10 years old. But here in this passage, he's talking about a salvation that is to come. The coming of the fullness of the kingdom and the return of Jesus. Peter says God God is guarding his people for that. He's guarding our inheritance and he's guarding us, holding us, sustaining us until that day when the Lord Jesus returns. 
your life down here, rust and moths and thieves and second laws of thermodynamics takes away from us. But this inheritance, this bad boy cannot be touched because it is kept by God and you are guarded by God for this. Isn't that so good? Have you ever had the experience of something that is just completely transcendent? Um, like maybe a song or a moment or like a certain kind of shimmer in one of your, I don't know, a, a nephew's eyes. You have a moment that just feels, I don't know, profoundly real with a capital R. And I'm talking like deep euphoric joys kind of stuff. It's like this millisecond of goodness, I wish I could just bottle this and kind of make this something that I could return to forever. Do you remember the first time you heard Higher by Creed? I'm telling you, if you recently rediscovered that song, and it's like when, the, when it just hits right and hits, it kind of goes up an octave in the chorus, it's like, man, there's something, there's something heavenly about that, you know? Or um, do you know the song Baba O'Reilly by The Who? That song's absolutely incredible. Have you ever had a moment where you're listening to a song or watching a movie? I, I watched, I'm ashamed to admit this, I watched It's a Wonderful Life for the very first time this past Christmas. And, and Sarah Gilliam has been telling me to watch it for years, and she was right. That movie is incredible. All right, and so do, seriously, I'm dead serious. At the end of that movie... You have this moment where um, uh, all of the neighbors kind of come and they, the, all of, all of uh, George's efforts to, to pour out and serve and serve and pour out and serve are finally met with the, the generosity of his community and they're just dumping money on this table. And I was just full grown man weeping at that moment in the movie. And it was like, this is so good. Uh, there, there are these moments where we experience something like a, like a primordial beauty to things. Do you know what I mean? Where we just have, it's, um, it's almost like, it's almost like everything's covered with this thick black drape, and every now and again we get punctures of light that come through, and we're just like, oh, this is so, so good, but it's so fleeting. Have you ever had an experience like that? Now, what if I told you, listen to this, that that millisecond of goodness is a crack in things where we get a little spray from the fountain of the goodness of God who's behind everything? Like, again, we exist under this thick drape, and every now and again, it gets temporarily punctured, like in that scene in It's a Wonderful Life that makes this grown man weep, or the moment in the bridge that hits just right. It is like a peek into the goodness of God himself. And then listen, what if I told you that for the Christian, there is coming a day when the thick drape is removed for good? And that the transcendence and goodness that we experience in a millisecond, that we experience through temporary punctures, isn't just a glimpse. Rather, it is the whole thing. It is the very air that we will breathe. And it's forever, and it's further up and further in, forever and ever, with new vistas of goodness and beauty and truth and joy to experience day after day after day. Because we will be in the presence of the God who is the source, the origin, the one from whom all goodness, life, and glory emanate. So what is the inheritance that is being kept for you, Christian? It's that. It's being resurrected into the presence of God and his good renewed heaven and earth. It's being in the company of the saints with the Lord Jesus forever. That's our inheritance. That's what Peter tells these suffering Christians is being kept for them. That's what he is assuring them they are being guarded for. This is the living hope that we are born into. 
that one day we will be resurrected with, like, and for Jesus. Psalm 27.4 says this, the psalmist. He says, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And according to God's great mercy, we were promised exactly that, Christian. That's the glory of it all. We deserved anything but this inheritance. We deserved, in fact, God's just judgment because of our sin. We rejected him. We turned from him to do our own thing. We were deserving of death. We chose lesser glories over this glory. And yet God, in his great mercy, in his great mercy, Peter says, caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that cannot be touched by the things of this earth. And I love that he says it's according to God's great mercy. It's not like God gives this to us against his better judgment. Like he's typically withholding and stingy about this sort of thing, and he's going to make an exception for you because I guess I should. That's not at all how God is portrayed. He is portrayed as one who lavishes his people with so much goodness and mercy and grace. According to his great mercy, one day you and I will be swimming in this stuff because his glory is shown to be glorious through this kind of absurd generosity towards his people. And so we have hope because of what Jesus has done for us. We are trust fund babies. Not by birth, but new birth. Born to a new life, a new promise, according not to our loveliness or our impressive resumes or to our good work, but according to mercy. And that's actually how you can be confident that it's not going anywhere. I didn't do anything to earn this. I can be confident that I am being guarded by God's power and being kept to receive this. Verse 6, Peter continues. Peter says, in this you rejoice. That is, in the living hope of that inheritance you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the revelation. That is, the the unveiling of Jesus Christ at his return. Peter says, we rejoice We rejoice looking forward to that coming day, though for a little while life under the thick drape is where we remain. We rejoice in summer break, though geometry is still in front of us. For a little while, Peter says, we may be grieved by various trials. As I was reading this passage and thinking about our body, I know that we are grieved by various trials. I look around the room and I I know the various trials that dot the souls that occupy this room. I think of the things I've prayed for for you. I think of the tears you've cried. I think of the tears we have cried over the things that you are experiencing. And Peter says that we rejoice in our living hope, though for a little while we're grieved by various trials. I think there's a seasonal rhythm to things. I think, I think we can recognize that trials come and trials go. And I think if you've been around long enough, you know that's the case. But that's not actually what Peter's saying here. I think when Peter's talking about we're grieved by trials for a little while, I think what he's talking about is the 80 years that the Lord Jesus keeps you on planet earth. Little while could mean a season. Usually, probably is a season. Darkness, heaviness, suffering. But it could also mean life. I think Peter's actually given us a, a, a sort of sobering hopefulness that the trials that you and I experience might be the shape of our life between now and when the Lord Jesus returns. But the hope that we have, in fact, the source of rejoicing that we have is that those things won't last forever. I've heard it said before, and I've said it and I'll say it again. 
that all of our prayers for healing and relief are either yes or not yet. But in the meantime, the Lord gives us trials to sharpen, test, and refine us, Peter says. He uses the analogy of gold being purified in fire, gold being melted down through heat, impurities rise to the top, scrape it off the top, and it makes the metal pure. I've never been smelted, but I feel certain that it's not pleasant, which is why Peter uses this analogy. It's a refining fire, and that's the idea here. We are melted down and purified through trials, and we find our faith made more sharp and more genuine as a result. And I love what he says in, in verse 7. He says that our, our, uh, the tested genuineness of our faith, he says, may, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the coming of Jesus. Now, of course, when Jesus returns, there will be praise and glory and honor for the Lord Jesus. But I think what Peter has in mind is actually praise and glory and honor from the Lord Jesus. When, like Jesus says in the gospel, he looks on those of us who have suffered and we have suffered and we have endured and we have tried to rejoice through trials. When Jesus looks at us and actually says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You suffered faithfully. Enter into the joy of your master. In verse 8, Peter ends this section by saying, Though we have not seen Jesus, we love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We don't hear see Jesus, at least not literally with our eyes, but we love him. We believe in him. And the thought of him and all that he's accomplished for us of no merit of our own fills us with joy. But one day... Peter says, one day we will finally see him. Your two eyes will lock eyes with Jesus. The Jesus we've sung about and thought about and prayed to and struggled to trust. We will see him. We will be saved. We will be there. Obtaining the outcome of our faith. Not earning the outcome of our faith, but finally receiving the inheritance that we have been promised and that we've been waiting for. So what word does Peter offering uh, what word does Peter offer to a suffering exiled people? The same thing he said to them is the same thing he says to us. It's hope. Hoping ultimately in the life and the world to come, filled with joy at the thought of seeing Jesus. And it's wild to think about. It. I mean, Peter saw Jesus. Peter knew what Jesus looked like. Yeah, he, didn't, he didn't have to watch The Chosen to get an idea. You know, Jesus, uh, Peter knew Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He sat with Jesus. And, and it's almost like when Peter's saying this, he's like, you guys, I'm telling you, I, I cannot wait for you, get, for, for you to get a load of who this guy is in his fullness. He's like, I know, you, I know you think about him and I know you're excited to see him, but you have no idea how good it is in actuality. The word that Peter offers us is hope. So I think two exhortations for us from this passage for Ridgewood this morning. Two things. Rejoice in the hope of our inheritance. And secondly, receive your trials as opportunities for your hope to be refined. Rejoice in the hope of our inheritance and receive your trials as opportunities for your hope to be refined. Let me speak to those who are here this morning who are not Christians. The question I would have for you is what hope do you have in your life? Do you have a hope in something that suffering can't take away? Because if there's anything that's inevitable in, in this life, it is suffering. And so my question is, what do you do with that? 
Is it purposeless and nameless and faceless? Is it, is it just sort of misery until death? Or do you have something, hope in something that suffering can't touch? Here this morning you say, I live for my work. I live for success. You say, I live for my family. I live for my kids. I live for a name or legacy that can outlast me. And I'd say that all of those things, as good as they can be, are susceptible ultimately to perishing, defilement, and fading. What if those things can't be ground down by time or a car accident or a diagnosis? Each of us knows, you know as well as I do, that that is the shape of things down here. And the question that I would have for you is, do you have hope in something that suffering can't touch? And I would also ask you this. What do you do with the glimmers of goodness that you get every now and again? Those punctures, are they aberrations? Are they accidents of brain chemistry? Or could it actually be spray from the fountain of eternity leaking into the present? Hear us, this morning we want you to rejoice in the hope of the inheritance that we share. And we invite you to enjoy the promise of that hope with us. Maybe all of this sounds nuts to you. But I would say, and I would would really press in here, that you have to have some kind of hope that suffering can't take from you. And Jesus offers us exactly that if we repent and believe. What that means is we turn from our things and our values and our way of doing things and we turn to him. And it's not about doing stuff to earn this gift, not at all. It's about looking to Jesus and believing in what he's done and just extending open hands to receive what he's promised. I'd love to talk with you about this. We could grab coffee. We could, we could talk in the lobby after this about these things. But I feel certain that the person who invited you this morning would love to talk more. I'm sure of it. But what it means to hope. Let me speak now to the Christians who are in the room. What I'd say to you is, first, rejoice in the hope of your inheritance. Sing on it. Think on it, read about it, fixate on it, sing in giddiness for the glory of it all, blessed by God, the the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has done this for you, and he's done this for me. Something I love about what Peter does here is he starts the letter with an invitation, or or a doxological proclamation, we might say. He starts by saying, blessed be God. He he sees and, and knows about their sufferings, but he starts by saying, blessed be God. I think there's something to be said for worship as treatment for suffering, especially the worship gathering. One of the things I I feel like we talk often with folks about, um, and I can completely understand wanting to back away from the community group get-together or the Sunday gathering during times of hardship. I completely understand that. You come, and it's like everybody here is just so happy. And no, no, I'm frustrated that everyone's lives are just so easy, and mine is just so miserable? How can you just sing these songs so tritely and glibly? And the temptation is to want to, to want to back away from that and to feel bitter and alone at all of these plastic people with their easy lives. But the first thing I'd say to that is, is first, don't believe that you're alone in these things. Every soul that is in this room is carrying some kind of heavy junk, I can assure you. So don't let the enemy convince you that you are suffering alone. You may be suffering uniquely, but you're not suffering alone. But more to the point, the second thing I'd say is what if one of the reasons we gather is to actually do what Peter is doing here? To look upon the beauty of the Lord, to look upon the glory of our hope instead of our hardships. To speak to my suffering first with a blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To say, I'm going I'm to praise you and the company of the saints whether I like it or not. I'm going to choose, I'm going to choose to rejoice in you, Lord Jesus. I think there's something to Peter's example here in this. So there's Christians who are here this morning who are grieved by various trials. 
I think Peter would invite us to consider that maybe our exile is given to create discontent with the state of things here in order to more fully set our hope on the world to come. It's amazing how often the writers of the New Testament will say things like, don't compare your present sufferings with the glory that is to come. Remain faithful. We are filled with joy inexpressible at just the thought of seeing Jesus, the one that we love. Let the glory of what's promised to us dull your appetite for the things of this world. The author of Hebrews in a similar situation to 1 Peter. After 10 chapters of urging them not to give up on Jesus, he reminds his readers of their former days. This comes from Hebrews 10. have it on the screen. He says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, i.e. born again, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And listen, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We're here this morning, we are grieved by various trials. Maybe we have even had good things taken from us. But friend, you are promised something deeper and better and more abiding than any of these things. An inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept for you, who by God's power are being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Your inheritance is locked away, kept in the heart of God for you. Can the enemy touch it? Can cancer touch it? Can death touch it? Can anything touch what is being guarded for you by the Jesus who bled for us? The answer is not in a gazillion trillion years. What better way to remind ourselves of our abiding inheritance than to loosen our grip with the things of earth? The call for us is endurance, but not through gritted teeth, through giddiness at what has been promised to us. A faithfulness which will result in praise, honor, and glory from the lips of Jesus himself. I'm going to read one final quote. This comes from a Chinese pastor who read a book uh, over the last couple of weeks of sermons that were translated from Chinese. Uh, they were the during COVID, uh, if, you're, if you're not familiar with the Chinese church, I mean, it is a, a treasure trove of just faithfulness and an example for the Western church. Uh, and there were some, some brothers who said during COVID, you know what, God's people need the word. We're going to put this stuff on YouTube, though it put a target on their backs. And a couple of English-speaking Christians got a hold of these sermons and translated it into English for our encouragement. It's incredible. This quote comes from one such pastor. His name is San Shu. He says, Christians know they might lose everything, or they might gain everything. Both are temporary. But God gives what the world cannot, eternal life. Therefore, Christians, do not despair. Are you afraid you'll be infected with a virus? Are you afraid you'll be bankrupt tomorrow? Are you afraid you might not have rice in the future? Are you afraid of future shortages or of turbulence in the world? Christian, your hope is built on the promise that is unshakable forever. Have faith to look to what the Lord has promised. I love this. That's how he lands this. He says, we do not know whether we will have tomorrow, but when we believe in the Lord, we will have eternity. These aren't truisms to pacify. This is truth to sustain us. 
Things may feel incredible, now, literally unbelievable now, a million miles away because of the horrors in front of us. But like the end of term, term, there is one glorious morning and we will feel like we've swallowed the sun. Next few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper serves to do exactly that. To remind us of the hope that we have that's out in front of us. The Lord's Supper, we look back on the, the, the broken body and shed blood of the Lord Jesus who achieved the promise of this inheritance for us. As we take, be nourished and strengthened to endure whatever various trials the Lord may have placed you in. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, we have not yet seen you, but we love you, and we want to love you more. We long for the day when we do finally see you face to face with new bodies, resurrected, made new like you. And we pray that truly, that truly we would be sustained by that incredible vision of what is to come. I do pray for my friends who are here this morning who are not yet believers. And I pray that they would be confronted with the reality of hopelessness so that they could find hope in you, Jesus. And I pray for those who are in the thick of it this morning. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be near to them, that you would minister to them by your spirit, that you would allow us to minister to them. And and would they be reminded that though things are passing away, though nothing is promised here, the thing that is promised to us is the eternal tomorrow. So we pray that you'd strengthen them as we take the supper. Would you give us eyes to see that day?